get to know the people that you want to serve and get to love them. You know what I'm saying? You just can't keep getting money on their backs. From the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, this is All Ears on Addiction, an NAATP podcast bringing you our season one series, Colors of Recovery, where we cover topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and elevate diverse voices of professionals in our field. Hi, I'm Zena Rodriguez. I'm a social worker, mental wellness advocate, and a diversity, equity, and inclusion champion. And I'm Tanya Bhattacharya, and I know personally that stories have power. Zena and I met 12 years ago at our first NAATP conference, where we were the only two people of color at our large table. Since then, not much has changed. We're here to talk about breaking down barriers to treatment and changing the faith of leadership within our field. So as a result, all people have an equitable chance to get well. Thank you for joining us, and I'm honored to have you join us for this special episode of the Colors of Recovery podcast as we honor Dr. Hayden and Turning Point as the first recipients of the National Association of Treatment Providers Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Award. This award is given to individuals or organizations who have made DEI a priority in clinical and operational practices. So Dr. Hayden, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be able to have this interview with you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Zena. I appreciate you too. And I appreciate the association to feeling comfortable to ask me to be a part of this great special occasion. Well, I think what's so beautiful about giving you in particular and your organization this award is as I looked at your mission and vision, it just aligned perfectly. Like your vision is to become recognized locally and nationally as a leader in providing quality, culturally specific behavioral health services and training. So your organization has been around for 45 years in Minnesota doing this work specifically for the African-American community. Tell me more about that. I mean, that is just such such a unique thing that we find within our own field. Tell me about that experience, the journey of your organization, your personal journey. Well, 48 years ago and 49 come this January, I will have met the program to encourage and change my life. I did that only because, not because of the 12 steps or anything of this nature. I did it because... One person told me, if I believed that this program would work for me, my life would never be the same. It was the belief. And I'm telling you that because the 12 steps then come and everything else come if I can believe. That's what we tell our clients. Believe in yourself. Make sure that within you, you have the power of belief. That's all you're asking at that time the power, and on a day-to-day basis, which we believe in 24 hours, steps at a time. And that's what I do. So 48 years, I have believed in what was said to me 48 years ago. From there, I shared it with my community. What I didn't see, and it was a young man named Henry Sullivan who was in treatment with me. He said, how can we have a program 
And I was in what they call St. Louis Park. It's a community outside uh, Minneapolis. How can we make this program good for the community? In other words, how can we serve people who look like me? You know, many people who look like this are served by people who look like this. And they don't understand what we're trying to do. And I think it's a fright when you say other people of color should have a big part to play in the sobriety of people who don't look like you. That's okay if you don't have that. That doesn't mean you're inferior. That doesn't mean anything except you've got to make that house filled. You got to fill the house up with others. And so that's what I did in Minneapolis. There was no Afrocentric, any program of color in Minneapolis at all. There were people, like I said, a few people, because back then they were going to jail like they are today. And we started Turning Point. And the interesting thing, Zena, was the people in the community was not in my backyard. They were the ones who said, we don't want Turning Point there. But I went to the elders and other people, and we bought a little house that had been burned down, and we fabricated it to make it at least 16 people could be served, men and women. And it was an interesting piece because we were there by ourselves. It was myself and two other people. And so I wasn't married at that particular time. So I worked the night shift and my other partner, David Goodlow, worked the day shift. And then we had an administrator. And it was so funny because we had one client and I was sleeping on pleather. Y'all know what pleather is as, as that plastic that sticks to you. And I was sleeping and my mind says someone standing over you. And I looked up and the only person we had in the program was standing looking over me and I just levitated, <laughs> you know, and it was so funny because you have to have those kind of stories in order to help yourself. Everything that has happened to me, everything has moved forward, has been because of helping me. Because what the programs say, if you don't do it for yourself, you can't help others. And so 45 years ago, here I am talking to Zena because I believed in myself. But then all the men and women have been through the program they believed in what I was trying to do. And now we believe in each other. We spoke a little bit about kind of the 12-step language, how it needed to be iterated to speak directly to a community of color, that sometimes the language of powerlessness is difficult to be received by people who are already oppressed. So how important was it for your organization and you as the leader and founder, you represent that community, that you could deliver the message of 12 steps in a way that was much more holistic? The first step says, come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I always had an issue with that. And when the seven steps of Kwanzaa came out, it kind of worked right there with the 12 steps. Because what it did, it took the power from others and restored that power to myself and others where we could believe in ourselves. So therefore, when we celebrate every day of sobriety or we talk to other people, we know that we're okay with saying to a person, 
I'm working on myself because the power is within me. And that's what we've tried to do with our clients is to make sure that they understood the power within themselves. Then the steps come along. Then people understand, no, I'm not bigger than you. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that I don't want to be around anyone that feels powerless. I can appreciate that. And I love how you use the example of using the cultural piece for African-Americans specifically of Kwanzaa and using the the cultural aspect of it to bring more clarity to how that could be integrated into the 12 steps. And that is something that can only be uniquely done by a person who understands that piece of the culture, right? So when we talk a lot to folks, it's about how do you use people's own cultural experiences as a strength while they're in treatment? That's right. And that takes nothing away from a person who has a PhD in Black history. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. But there are pieces, for example, I'm talking to you. Zena, do you have children? I do. Okay. So when you talk about having a, a child, and I have some daughters and sons. When I was there and my wife was delivering the children, they told me to get the nice song that she would like while she was going through these changes. And, you know, so I got Luther Vandross and, you know, all these things. And I talked good talk to her. And it got to a point where the child was coming. She said, I'm not going to use the words she used. <laughs> but she said, I don't want to hear Luther. I don't want to hear anyone. What I found out about women having children, there's only so far I can go as a man. And then I have to sit back and just say, what do you want me to do? That's the same thing when it comes to the culture. Stop saying your best friend is whatever culture that is. Just say, how can I help you get to where you want to and need to go? Yeah, I love how you phrase that. And what you're speaking to is people of the authority of their own lives. Like we're the experts, right? We have these degrees or, you know, we have these specialties. But at the end of the day, for treatment to be effective, the person has to have some authority on it. And I think that's what you're speaking to. We have, you know, we have some great ideas and some great outlines and there's definitely some efficacy and evidence base, but who's really the authority at the end of the day of what's going to be good for them? It's the individual. And do we engage them enough in that conversation? And then when we add the layer of ethnicity and culture, you know, we're talking about mostly white providers in our country. That's a reality. It's going to be that reality for a long time. But are you a provider that can ask a question? Can you be open and curious and allow people that are other than you to be an authority? And it sounds like that is something that has been a core of your belief system and what drives your treatment setting, which you have grown. You talked about the humble beginnings, but you are now a full continuum of care. You have a training institute. So let's talk a little bit about that, like your belief in a whole system of community. And when I looked at your circle of sobriety care model that you all established in 2005, it's like that model is built around an entire, not just an individual, but the community. Um, So can you share some more about that? Well, when I started off, you know, I shared with you is even the people in the community that I wanted Turning Point to be in, they were not for what we were trying to do. So I went to the elders. I went to people who had strength within the community because I knew I could not lead that 
I had to make sure that the people who had trust in the community, who people understood, people who were superintendents of schools and all these kinds of things. And so that whole wraparound services came from my not knowing everything, but pulling those who had different views and opinion in what I should do. And that's what Turning Point does now. I started off saying we were treating men and women. The politics got involved. And so now we have women program, outpatient, and we have men program. But when I, when Turning Point treated men and women from a cultural standpoint, our outcomes were better than now the people who make sure that all women are together and all men together, but yet and still, black women need to be with black women. Brown women need to be with brown women because there's a part of that whole piece that doesn't work because you interject your inferiorities into the treatment program. Now, what I mean by inferiority, I go back to when we were talking about having a child. You know, I'm going to be trying to put Luther Vandross and play Luther Vandross, and that's not what you needed to have or hear at that time. So I did, what did I say? I sit back and I followed your leadership. That doesn't mean that I wasn't capable down the road to be a great, a good father. That's the same thing. You have to play your part. And so that's what we did with the wraparound services. So we have apartments, we have training, we have outpatient, we have inpatient, the whole piece. And the reason we did that is because we listened. I want you to tell me what I can do those next steps. So that's what we've done with uh, Turning Point, that wraparound services piece. Yeah, I think, and I think how impactful is that for the men, the community? Um, because I think about, okay, initially you were talking about the NIMBY issue, not in my backyard, right? Still happens today in so many, you know, whenever a treatment center or a sober living wants to open in a neighborhood, because there's this huge fear and stigma of still on mental health and addiction. And that, I mean, is exponential in our own communities, right? We just don't get it. We don't understand it. We don't see the need or you know, that that person is completely ostracized in the community. So it's ironic, though, that now here we are in 2021 and now you have a major like one of the most prominent healthcare providers coming to you, to your neighborhood and saying, you know, I'm just speaking your partnership with Hazelden and saying, how do we increase access to care in your communities? Right. So now there's a huge understanding, maybe not still a stigma met within our own community of having the need to have our own treatment centers in our communities, but other providers are also recognizing that as way more homogenous. So can you speak uh, a little bit about that collaboration and partnership? Because I think that really impacts communities. You know, when a major provider like Hazelden comes and says, what can we do and how do we work with the community so we can get more people in treatment how do we do that? But then how do we also do it from a really appropriate cultural lens? The beauty of the, uh, our relationship with uh, Dr. Lee at this particular time and the president before, uh, we had been trying to do some things with Hazleton, but it just didn't work out. And I think I can say, because 
there were certain people who were not ready. But what sobriety gave me was patience because I knew at some point in time it was going to happen. And I was going to get to that point where you were saying, no matter who's being trained, if you're being trained from a their cultural aspect, it's not going to work. When George Floyd died in Minnesota, it kind of got people thinking about putting myself in another position. Let me put myself in that person's position. What's going on? Why would a, a man put his knee on a person's neck until the, he died? Part of that happened, and then I started talking to Dr. Lee and the whole staff of Hazleton, and they said, we want this to work, and here's what we need. We don't know how to train people from an African-American perspective. They finally said, we don't know. And that's when we jumped in there with a young lady named Angela Reed, who does a lot of the training. And one of the things I'm, I'm saying to Hazelna, we've got to some kind of way do the treatment in, in Center City for a week. Those people are going to have to come into the inner city. <laughs> because when you deal with cultures, Zena, it's about behavior. You can't isolate culture. You can't do that. You've got to bring it in. If you deal with African-Americans, you've got to deal with it where they understand. What you're speaking to is lived experiences. Folks of different backgrounds have different lived experiences than the providers. And that is a profoundly limiting thing for sustainable recovery. You know, so I love what you said. Like if you're training Hazelton staff and you're going to work with this population, you need to go where this population is. You need to have that experience so that you can adequately be able to know what they are expressing or maybe not expressing and need to express. I think about just where your location, which you just shared about George Floyd. You're in the epicenter of what, why we're even having this conversation, why this award even happened, right? The murder of George Floyd got all of our attention. Maybe some of us who've lived it, we've known it all this time, but others have said, this is wrong and we need to do something. So what do we do and how do we do it now is the question. And I think you're you're outlining that. You have to be able to engage directly with communities in their communities and be open to letting them be the authority. And you, you got to know what people experience. So like the George Floyd thing, the racial trauma, right? That's so critical because every single day, if you're a person of color, you are experiencing some form of race-based stress, race-based trauma. This week, if you're watching what's going on, and I mean, every week there seems to be something that is just like, it's triggering for folks of color. So imagine when those people are in treatment, how do you manage that? Uh, a guy the other day, he was a white guy, comes into the black community looking for drugs, ended up, couldn't find the drugs, trying to get away from the police or something, runs in uh, a, a good Samaritan, tries to stop him. He shoots him and these kind of things. Now, usually you heard that was an African-American or it was a brown person or whatever the case is. All of a sudden, our chemical health and all those things that were always blamed on certain people have reached the world. And so how are you going to treat someone if you don't treat them in terms of the culture now? So I'm not dealing with just white folk. I'm dealing with the culture that other people have bought into. You understand that they can no longer blame it on people like you and I. 
Yeah, I I love that because I was looking at the training course outline that you set under your culturally specific service center and viewing your own culture and context of other cultures and understanding American culture is one of the topics. And I haven't seen that in folks that are doing traditional DEI. And there were some other topics, you know, that I think are so uniquely different to our community. And we don't think about, you know, concentrated disadvantage was one topic. Black children of alcohol and drug addicted parents, like really specific nuanced topics that need to be discussed and delivered. And I think that's kind of what you were speaking to when you talk about culture. Yeah, there's an age piece too that we work on that uh, is important for that because we overlook our brothers and sisters that's aging. 55 and above, and we put them in these projects, they call them here, and things of this nature, and we leave them alone. We leave them there to die. Well, we don't do that because those are the same people who who didn't let you die when you were coming up, you had chemical health issues and things of this nature. So we try to cover the whole spectrum. In our cultural specifics uh, service center, the whole glass is people who look like those people in that community. And when they started to tear up our community with George Floyd and all these other things, guess guess what building didn't get touched? McDonald's went down, the banks went down, everybody went down, and we did not board our building up because- You were part of the community. And they knew, oh, don't mess with that. You know, they see me walking down the street. Oh, man, he's cool. That's Peter. Because I make myself known in my community. And many of the people that went through Turning Point went on and got their degrees or whatever the case is. And that's what we also working with Hazleton that work so our people can go and get their master's. But we're known. And so if you're not known, if you just catch the freeway and go past a community of the people you want to serve, you're not going to do well. So what would your advice be? Like we're speaking to an audience, really, the primary membership of the National Association of Treatment Providers is white leadership. Um, just like your experience with Hazelden, you know, what advice would you give to them? DEI is the big buzzword. What should that mean to them? What should that look like to them? Well, stop hiring people that you're comfortable with. That's the first thing. The second thing is Dr. Lee and I talk once a month, at least once a month. And uh, he's been the turning point. He's, you know, all those kinds of things. Get to know the people that you want to serve and get to love them. You know what I'm saying? You just can't keep getting money on their backs. I was talking at a board meeting uh, that a church has bought a liquor store. And what we were saying is that the liquor store does not love the community. They profit from the community. So I would tell people, if you can't find a person with that type of degree, with the type of understanding we need with regards to helping people to change their lives, then you start by training them. It's on you. And, and I'll go back to, to the point of taking people you love. I mean, you don't love, but you like. Because many of the, the, the heads now, VPs, there are people who you like that you're not going to get any difficult feedback from and things of this nature. That's what you need. Sometimes I'm not going to say what people like. And that's okay. 
But then let's break it down. Let's make an understanding. Well, why do you say that? What does that mean? That, But that means you have to work. It's the importance of loving. If you love recovery, right? You love the, the power of recovery. We believe that. We believe that for everyone, right? And when we talk about, oh, I don't see color or we're all God's children, then you got to be really specific about whose God's children are. Are they represented in your settings? Are they represented in your leadership, in your clinical teams? Do that inventory on yourself, that, you know, fearless inventory as an organization. One of the things I appreciate about all these conversations and so much with you right now is just this real recognition that if you love and you believe in that power of recovery, you will then create professional development for folks that are representative of communities, it, even if you don't currently have it. And it sounds like that's been, you know, how your relationship with Hazelton and as organization has grown. You know, this is the time now. And what a missed opportunity if we don't do it. And if we just take away all the other political commentary around it, you know, whether it's racist, systemic or not, I mean, there's just, we can't deny the fact that everyone deserves recovery and how do we make sure that they get it in ways that are not harmful. And this week, um, you all just celebrated a big alumni reunion. I saw that. It was so great. It was, it's so great to watch men and women come up and get their medallion. And we give the medallion from one day to 40 years or whatever the case is. And it's at, it was at the Capri Theater and we dress them up and, you know, it's Academy Award kind of thing. And, and we try to pick people out who understand that no one has loved them. And all of a sudden, today's your day, no matter what. You're the person and feed them and all those kinds of things. And and we also uh, had an honors program, too, where we honor African-American people. So Senator Bobby Joe Champion, who is uh, a state senator here, he received the award. Uh, we have given the award to Judge Alexander, people that Europeans don't see them the way we do. And I mean, it's a great award. And then we, we also honor uh, the person who has worked at Turning Point and made a difference. And then the client of the year, the person we gave it to this year came through Turning Point about 30, 35 years ago and still sober. And so it's about one day at a time, X amount of years. And what's so funny about it is that I have to start all over again every day. So beautiful. And it's just that beautiful story of recovery, power of attraction. You go back into the community as a stellar example of recovery, impact your own community. You know, I can't, I'm so honored to sit here and talk with you today. I'm so glad we did this. I can't wait to meet you in person when you receive your award, because I'll be there. And I couldn't think of for the inaugural award a better organization and individual to receive it. Well, thank you. I I appreciate it. And lastly, the award that I'm going to get, the award said for Turning Point, not for Peter Hayden. So I've already, am already going to get a nice, some kind of frame, but the way it's going to be framed, it's going to be framed. So when people walk into Turning Point, they'll see that. 
it's not going to be sitting on my desk or anything. It is a turning point award from the time that we started with the with the levitation of the one person we had to today, today. And and uh, and somebody's there, you know, and I always tell the guys I go in once. I mean, not into turning point. I go in where they're having their treatment and things of this nature. And I say to them, which one of y'all are going to be Peter Hayden? Because I believe they're sitting in that room somewhere. That's beautiful. So here's something I almost forgot to ask. But now that you've alluded to the fact that you, you know, you love music and you even prep music for your wife's childbirth, what song motivates you? This is tough work. What what song would you put on that would motivate you? Uh, Tyrone Davis, it's a turning point in your life. <laughs> okay, okay. So that's your set. That will be key on your soundtrack. I love it. That's on my soundtrack, you know. I mean, uh, and it was so funny because Turning Point was started before he he made the song, and so we picked up on the song after. But that's what we play. I I'm at the turning point of my life, and uh, play it sometime, Tyrone Davis. I'm gonna play it as soon as we get off because I think yeah. it's just it's just perfect. <laughs> what a perfect way to end. Yeah, and and, and you know, Zena, I have never achieved anything without your help, other people's help. And if you let go and let God, he'll take you to the right path. I mean, you and I are friends for the rest of our lives, whether we see each other or not. I'm so blessed for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. What a great conversation. Amazing stories. I love both of your energy. What a great way to wrap up this year of the podcast. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Dr. Hayden was really a special interview, right? He's our first recipient of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Award, um, which is going to be announced at the conference next week. And I mean, it's just so wonderful to sit with an elder and that storytelling piece. And I think it's so critical when we talk so much about culture and, and legacies that this is part of how we learn is from our elders and how to, and to see somebody who's pioneered specifically for the black community in Minnesota. It, it was just a great conversation to have with him. Absolutely. And I love what you said about, you know, learning from our elders, because I think sharing our stories is how this wisdom, this experience, the lived experience gets passed on. So we don't have to keep making these same mistakes because they have been, this, the experiences have been forged. We just have to learn and listen to the stories, right? There's so much I loved about this talk. And one of the things that comes up for me is how he talked about the importance of allowing people other than us to be an authority. Um, so leadership to look at it from a different lens and maybe look at lived experience as something that creates authority. People who look different than them can be an authority, you know, start hiring people that you're not necessarily comfortable with, you know, that could be one, one avenue, but you know, those things are easier said than done. Right. So true. And I think, you know, they've been able to accomplish so much. They started, were founded in 1976. I was five years old. Right. And I think about what was happening. I grew up in the Bronx, like literally the Bronx was burning at that time. I can't imagine what the urban part of Minnesota was like and that he and a small group of people 
knew that they had this desperate need for care specific to Black men and women in the community, because I love how he spoke about that. Like there was no like gender separate treatment. They were just people dying on the street and they were going to start a program to help them and how he shared his own, you know, recovery story in that and, and how they just grew out of it. I don't know. I hear these stories and I think about why don't we have hundreds of turning points around the country. You know, he's been able to do it and sustain this for the community for over 46, 45 years. My math is terrible for such a sustained effort. But it also shows when you're committed to a community, then you can provide adequate services, right? And I think that's a lot of what we've been trying to get across in our mission of this podcast is that with intent and intentionality, you really can create services for people that normally don't receive them. Yes. And taking the wisdom that we've gained from different podcast interviews over the year, some of the things that come up is, you know, like Kateri talking about nothing about us without us, right? Including the including the community served in the treatment programming, in the design. Charles's podcast interview comes up and his own lived experience of coming into a treatment program where maybe he didn't feel like he belonged. You know, uh, Melanie's podcast interview about cultural responsiveness, right? Like I use that phrase all the time now. I learned it from that episode. Can we be culturally competent or do we have to be culturally responsive? Because things are changing all the time, right? Yeah. So many little nuggets of wisdom from all of them and not little, like major nuggets. So one of the things I was so impressed about when I interviewed Dr. Hayden and I was looking at their website is how embedded they are in their community. So they're not only providing like inpatient residential treatment, they have a full continuum of care. So inpatient, residential, step down to sober living, but then they have affordable housing. They have legal support. They have job skills and they do all of this in this culturally specific service center. That's what they call it. They have family care. They have HIV testing. So you think about a community that really understands its needs Turning Point has figured out treatment is not the end, like that end point of coming in, you know, and having someone come in, stabilize, and then going back to the community is enough, is definitely something that they've realized is not enough. And they've built this wonderful community service around it. And I don't know if you remember in his interview, and I, I thought this was so powerful, he shared about how doing the protests all the other businesses around them had a border up and, you know, the big corporate businesses, the McDonald's and the banks and the stores were putting up, you know, their ply boards and protecting their businesses. And he said they didn't have a worry in the world and they didn't have to worry and they never boarded up and they never closed because they were part of the community and they were so embedded in the community that the community protected them. And I think that was so powerful and, and just a powerful example for all of us of who are doing this work, that we're not doing work just on an individual, that when we're doing work with an individual, we're Im impacting an entire community. I love that, Zena. And I think that's what it looks like to be in right relation with each other, right? It starts as an individual, maybe, but then it's just about each individual being in right relation with the person next to them the person behind them, the person in front of them. And over time, you know, creating this amazing relationship because it takes time, you know, it takes decades to have a relationship like that, which they have. Uh, this kind of work doesn't happen overnight. I think sometimes we hope it will, right? Like our census goals make it so. 
<laughs> but but it can't, right? This is this is a lifetime of work, I think. But it starts today. It starts with one little step at a time. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the things that he talked about, which you also talked, I remember you wrote a blog about this last year. And I think, it, I, I don't remember if he said this or if this was the title of your blog or what, but really like George Floyd was our patient. Did we fail him? I think that was your blog title, but he spoke to the same concept. This is what we know. These are our patients, should be our patients. And how do we expand services in a very safe way, non-harming, community-based, community-centered way? I think that's a critical piece. And what I love about, you know, we're on the cusp of the conference in a few days that we've concentrated so much of this conference on racial equity um, because we recognize this. And George Floyd was a pivot point and I think a real wake up call for everyone in our field. You know, this is a person who was struggling with the substance abuse for a large majority of his adult life. You know, how would he have fit in one of our treatment facilities? And I think a lot of what we're addressing in this conference is going to speak to that with the different presentations. I know I'm really excited. I know we've shared some excitement. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I'm beyond excited. We have a story around this. I mean, you and I met for the first time um, at what happened to be both of our first conferences in this field in 2009, the NAATP conferences in San Antonio. The agenda looked very different. The table looked very different. The makeup of the attendees, the makeup of the speakers, you know, everything. This year, it's very different. This year, I have never seen a conference like this. And the fact that it's NAATP putting it on, who is the membership organization of our field, you know, it speaks volumes. It speaks volumes to the direction that I think that we're all going in. And I am really interested to hear what the feedback will be like afterwards, because I have been involved in a couple of conferences, not necessarily in our field, but other, you know, you know, I come from the nonprofit space, fundraising space, et cetera. And when conferences have taken a turn and become more inclusive, more diverse, and really talked about anti-racist principles and changing the way that we do things, the feedback, I think a mark of a successful conference is that the feedback is maybe not so positive because it's ruffling some feathers. It's making people uncomfortable. And if we aren't willing to get uncomfortable, nothing changes. It's like recovery. If we, if we don't get uncomfortable, nothing changes. I think that's such an important point. And I mean, here's the first thing I think about because I'm in the middle of prepping my presentation for the conference next week, which is on how do you hardwire diversity, equity, inclusion in your treatment settings. And I think about this one statistic that keeps jumping out. The number of opiate overdoses between January of this year and April, that has been breaking records, right? It seems like every few months because of the pandemic, we're breaking records. For the Black community, the overdose death rate in that number is a 38% increase. They represent 38% of that number. So I say that to say for the folks that are uncomfortable about the racial topic around this, how could you look at that number and not see that there is a huge disparity in what is happening? That's beyond significant. So we have to talk about it and we have to address it. And yes, it's uncomfortable we often talk about this, to be a person of color speaking to a white person about these issues, knowing, you know, because these are many of our colleagues and friends, that they're uncomfortable is a challenge for us as well. Like, I, I get uncomfortable. But as long as we have the willingness to look at that, right, to look at a statistic like that and be able to say, man, that's a problem. I want those people to have recovery. And the fact that 38% of these people are never going to have that opportunity 
and then the impact that 38% missing people in their communities and the families that were affected. I mean, if you're doing this work, you got to say, we got to do something. So my goal has been all along with the podcast, with the presentation that I'm doing, with the work that I'm doing now is just to make small impact wherever I can. This is generational change that has to happen, but we can be really intentional about creating small changes can make big impact. So we can create change. So be willing to get uncomfortable. While I'm at the conference, anyone who wants to reach out and have a little chat with me, I'm so open to it and I'm I'm hopeful for it. I'm actually hoping that it happens because I think we can't do it if we don't collectively start having these conversations. That's right. And that speaks to a concept I've been really reading up on recently. There's a concept called emergence, which is really the phenomenon of complex things, complex systems arising out of very, very simple, easy interactions. And so each of these conversations, each of these little coffee chats, you know, by the exhibit hall, talking about these things, each of those conversations has a ripple impact that we might never understand where that's going, but they do. They're life-changing, life-affirming conversations. So. I'm excited to have them at NAACP. And one of the things I'm most excited about is our DEI committee getting together for the first time in person while we're all there together. I know that's pretty amazing. Um, One of the slides I have is I'm putting all the faces of the committee on. What an example of diversity. If that committee is not emblematic of everything that we're trying to do and what we hope other people aspire to do. Like that should be everyone's goal. Like we need to take a picture of that table and go, okay, folks, this is what your networking table should look like. Your leadership table should look like your clinical table should look like this type of diversity is what is America and what should be recovery for all. If our listeners want to learn more about the National Association of Treatment Providers, diversity, equity, and inclusivity initiatives, visit our website at naatp.org backslash resources backslash DEI or email us at info at naatp.org.